Okay, how do I deal with massive disappointment? Well, we all, um, we all face disappointment. There's uh, the cup of tea going cold, that's disappointing, a little bit disappointing. Uh, there's uh, going to have a picnic on your birthday and then the weather is terrible and it's raining, that's a little bit disappointing. Yeah, there's a footy, certain footy teams, might be a little bit disappointing. Uh, you might get sick on your holiday, and uh, so you miss out on some stuff. That's a little bit disappointing, isn't it? Uh, then there's this guy who, um, uh, there's, there's a meme for everything on the internet. Uh, this guy was reviewing Popeye's Cheddar Biscuit Butterfly Shrimp, and uh, mid-review he said, my disappointment is immeasurable and my day is ruined. And uh, it went everywhere, and everyone, everyone now uses that phrase. My disappointment is immeasurable, and my day is ruined. Um, I, I can go on. You know, the, the casing on your wedding photographer's camera gets cracked, and he's using film and not digital. So half of your photos have a burn line through them from your wedding day, and you can't get them back. That happened to a certain couple. Uh, you might work on a project that fails and perhaps weeks or months of your effort have just gone down the drain. Some boss comes in and cans the whole thing. Uh, we might get an injury that stops us from being active. We can no longer work or enjoy the things that we used to do. That is a bit more disappointing. And then there's the next level up of massive disappointment. Uh, crippling debt, where our finances let us down. Marriage breakdown. Family conflict, where our household lets us down. A betrayal of friendship, where our relationships let us down. Chronic disease, where our bodies let us down. Someone you love dies young. And then there's a whole category that we, uh, we do need to be real about and uh, honest about, which is when our faith lets us down or our church lets us down, our pastors, leaders let us down, or even a whole faith tradition lets us down. Or when we feel like God himself has let us down. How do we deal with massive disappointment, deep disappointment? When, we, when we've trusted faithfully in something or someone, we've invested heavily from our heart and soul, and we had an expectation that this would bring about the good life, and actually it's brought about the bad life. How do we deal? We all have hopes and dreams about life. Uh, those hopes and dreams set some expectations for us. When the expectation is not met, we have disappointment, and essentially what we face is the grief of that loss. The gap between the height of the expectation and the depth of reality, the gap, the distance between those is the size of our disappointment. The bigger the gap, the bigger the loss. So the higher the expectation and the lower the reality, the bigger the loss, the bigger the grief, 
and the injury that's associated with disappointment. If you want to put it mathematically, because I know some of you want to put it mathematically right, E minus R equals D. Expectation minus reality equals disappointment. Just to, you know, for you nerdy types. Now, you'll hear from some people that um, the crucial thing in dealing with any disappointment is to just ditch your expectations. You know, if E minus R, just get rid of E. Don't have any expectations. Uh, and actually, some people encourage you, and maybe this is legitimate, um, they live by the no expectations, no disappointments motto. Get rid of your expectations. You know, don't expect to be married at, you know, a certain age. Don't expect anything about kids. Don't expect to climb a career ladder. Don't expect even other people to be kind and trustworthy. Like, just don't expect people to live up to a certain standard, and then you won't be disappointed. You know, all those things that are outside of our control, don't have expectations. I'm just, uh, take responsibility for yourself, live in the moment, and be grateful for however things are. Now, for some people, it might be really helpful to work on that stuff with a, a counsellor or a psychologist. However, when we're dealing with massive disappointment about really significant things, we probably need something a bit uh, deeper and a bit richer to live by. You actually need to have hope and expectations in life. You can't just get rid of them. Uh, so here's a few things from the ancient wisdom of the scriptures. Number one, lament and grief. It is okay to name your loss and your grief. It is okay to lament, which is to go through the process of acknowledging publicly your massive disappointment. Uh, if you read through the Bible, you'll see that this is the most normal thing to do. So the, uh, the reading I'd like to read for you today is from uh, the book of Job. Now Job is the guy who knows about massive disappointment in life. He lost greatly of uh, his own property, uh, his own family, uh, buildings, and then he uh, had an illness to go with that as well. Massive disappointment. And, and he speaks, he names his loss, and it's, and it's quite heavy what he says. He says, uh, why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Here is a man who has experienced massive disappointment, and it's okay to name it and to say how he is experiencing it. Job is expressive about the tragedy he has experienced. He verbalizes his distress. He doesn't keep it bottled up. Some of us are pretty good at bottling up those disappointments, hiding them away. But he doesn't pretend to be all stoic and tough as though he can handle the pain. 
and is far from the only one in the Bible. So, you know, King David was highly expressive in his grief. Solomon, the prophets were highly expressive in their grief. And think of Hannah, who was desperate for so many years to bear a child and cried out to God with so much fervor that the, the, the priest Eli thought that she was drunk. She's expressive in her lament and her massive disappointment. Uh, if you read through all 150 Psalms, the book of Psalms, there's 150 of them in there. And if you were to look at the biggest category of Psalms, if you were to go through and go, well, here's all the ones that are joy and, you know, praising God. Here's all the ones that kind of tell a bit of a story. And now here's the ones that are about lament. That's the biggest category. One in three Psalms are lament. Now, why, why would God, in His infinite wisdom, decide that the most psalms we might need are the lament ones? Why would the Bible have so many words of grief and disappointment? Well, because they're actually an invitation for you to pray them, to express your own grief through them. And perhaps you could even go and write your own disappointment, your own lament psalm in your own words. Uh, if you look at Psalm 88, Psalm 88 is sometimes called the darkest psalm because it is just pure disappointment. And there's no silver lining, no hope for the future. It is just grief. Uh, and the other thing to, um, to note uh, from the Bible about the most normal thing ever with disappointment is not just to speak it, but also to show it. Uh, when Job suffers a massive loss of property and loss of his family, what does he do when all the messengers come? It says in Job 1, at this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. He expressed his grief visibly and then he fell to the ground in worship and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Now sometimes uh, grief was signified by wearing sackcloth and uh, sitting in ashes, uh, a physical expression that shows your grief and sorrow and loss. Now, you don't have to go and do some online shopping right now for the latest in uh, sackcloth, fashion. Um, there's a variety of ways that we could do this in a, in a culturally meaningful way for us right now. Uh, it used to be that the color of grief was black, but then we live in Melbourne and uh, everyone just wears black all the time, so either there's uh, a lot of disappointment uh, permanently around in Melbourne, uh, or we need to find other ways to live out our grief. There's ways to show that you are grieving. And all this to say that it is okay. It is okay to acknowledge and lament your massive disappointment. Um, I was leading a Christian funeral a, a number of years ago, and it was, a, it was a combined tradition of Eastern Christianity and Western Christianity. I'm, I'm Western Christian, 
we're doing Western Christianity here. There's a whole lot of traditions that come from the Eastern stream of Christianity, and uh, this happened to be a blending of the two. And it really struck me how much um, those of us who are brought up culturally Western uh, really try to minimize grief. Get it over with quickly, do it really short, don't talk about it much, don't show it much. Well, um, my, my experience of a more Eastern tradition, uh, I, when, when this man died, everyone went around to their home almost immediately. Then the day before the funeral, there was a service, a pre-kind of funeral service in the home with his body had been prepared in the home. Uh, and then the morning of the funeral, there was something before the funeral at, the, at their house. And then the funeral itself, there was about 500 or so people there um, and multiple eulogies, lots of words spoken about this man's life. And then everyone, one by one, individually would come forward and pay their respects at the open casket up the front. One by one, every single person would come and pay their respects before filing out. Then there was some food. And then we went to the uh, cemetery and there was another service there. And then there was more food. And then after that, there was, there was a wake afterwards as well. Like it was, it was a week long kind of thing. And everyone was exhausted. And I was exhausted. Like I'm not used to doing that kind of stuff. But do you know what else was exhausted? Grief. I mean, not entirely, but in, a, in an amazing way, I'd, I'd experienced, perhaps for the first time, an, an exhausting of the grief that I hadn't seen before. Perhaps as Westerners, we have a tendency to cut our grief short. Uh, this leads on to the second point, Liminal angst and endurance. Um, when we think of massive disappointment and grief and loss and, and change to our expectations of the future, uh, we tend to think in terms of like before and after, like a BC and an AD, kind of binary in our thinking. But there's actually an in-between space. The fun word for that kind of in-between, messy, confusing, uh, difficult space in the middle is to call it liminal. Liminal moments are the moments in life that are neither before nor fully after a big transition and change has occurred. Uh, if there is a boundary or a threshold, then the liminal space is on that threshold, on that boundary. Uh, it is to be sitting on the fence where the expectations of the past are no longer relevant, but you have not yet formed the new expectations of the future. Now, picture yourself sitting on a fence. Is that comfortable? <laughs> I don't know about your fences, but I don't want to be sitting on a fence. It's really uncomfortable to sit in a messy space in the middle of change and shift. But sometimes we actually need to sit there for quite some time. Uh, the book of Job is really interesting in this regard. There are 42 chapters in Job, 42 chapters. The first two chapters are narrative, they tell the story of what happened to Job. 
um, and reveal what's unfolded in heaven. And then we find some friends of Job have come over to be with him in his sorrow. Uh, it talks about uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar who come around and um, sympathize with him and comfort him, which is a good thing to have friends come around and, and talk. And they actually weep aloud. They tear their robes too, and they sprinkle dust on their heads. They join Job in his grief, which is wonderful. Seven days and seven nights, no one says anything. Seven days and seven nights. What, a, like, what an uncomfortable, difficult, but beautiful way to join Job in his grief. That is a long time. Now that's the end of chapter two. Then there are 35 chapters of dialogue. Conversate that no narrative, no here's what happened next. It's just Job talks, Eliphaz talks, Job responds, the other guy talks, Job responds, like long speeches. You might think, boring. Come on, like, tell me what happened. But that's missing the point, is missing the, the difficulty of wrestling with what is going on. That's what's happening in that conversation. It's almost, a, it's kind of an argument. They're arguing about, like, who, almost who is to blame here, what, what is going on? Job, you need, to, you need to go and do this. And Job's like, no way. He's not having a bar of it. Job pushes back on his friends. There's a serious wrestling in the grief, in the loss, in the disappointment. And it takes a long time. That's a lot of dialogue in there. It's only in chapter 38 and onwards, those final chapters, that we then hear God and Job in direct dialogue, and then in the final chapter, there's this tiny epilogue at the very end that explains how everything ends up. So Job is not a story about, here's what happened to him, and here's how it got resolved. It's a story about the hard questions of why. How do we deal with it? It's the long wrestle and angst and disagreement that even Job has with himself. And then the angle that God brings in that Job is utterly unprepared for. So I encourage you to read it. Wrestle along with Job. Now your story is not Job's. It might be a completely different scenario. So don't read Job and go, oh, well that happened to Job, so that's exactly what's my, you know, that's, that's, that's my case, right? There's, there's some revelation about what happens in heaven, some dialogue that God, that, that is not the case for everyone. So don't read it as just this blueprint for this is the reason for your suffering. This is the reason for your disappointment. But there is something to learn there about how to wrestle in the difficulty. And if we're not willing to do that, if we're not willing to go through those liminal moments, those difficult times, it can be really hard to think about the next point. We can be too quick to go to the next point, which is to lift your gaze. I mentioned uh, Psalm 88, which is a very dark psalm with very little sense of hope. And yet in that psalm, there is still a lifting of the gaze towards God. Uh, the, the questioning and the grief is still directed to God. 
And the psalmist still names God as the one who saves. So, so the psalm starts, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. And then the dialogue that Job has with his friends, it's actually all about, well, where is God in this? Where is God in this? Even though they don't agree, uh, they're all directing their attention to be thinking about God. And then all of the dialogue culminates in not just talking about God, but Job talking to God. Not just talking about God, but Job talking to God. The unique and beautiful thing about the Christian faith is that God came to us in Jesus Christ to enter into our suffering and our disappointment. There is no other worldview that has the comfort and the intimacy of a God who is willing to be present with us in our massive disappointment. God understands what it's like to grieve to suffer loss, to have a vision and hope for a beautiful world full of beautiful life and for tragedy and evil to tear it all down. You might remember Jesus being in the garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested and set on this path to death. Uh, in the garden, he was praying in anguish. And then on the cross, he spoke words of being forsaken The amazing thing is that when, when we lift our gaze to God, we don't see someone who is far off and unbending and cold. When we lift our gaze to God, we realize he was closer than we ever thought possible. And when we have the comfort of God's presence and love, then we can get to the final point uh, of learning to trust again. Uh, disappointment is a trust killer. Disappointment kills trust. If someone else disappoints you, you lose your trust in them for next time. Uh, and one of the most difficult things to talk about is when we feel disappointed by the church or by leaders in the church or when we feel let down by God himself. We can suffer a loss to our trust in God himself. If that's you, you are not alone. And God is not trying to sweep any such experiences under the carpet. I mean, why else would he have preserved this story of Job in the Bible? Uh, why else would there be so many experiences of suffering recorded in the scriptures? And I'm sure those, uh, those first disciples of Jesus, they followed him around for a few years. They trusted in him. Seemed like a bit of a movement happening and they were like, core there and, and Jesus is talking big about a big kingdom coming. And it's really exciting. And then they go to Jerusalem and he's there and he's doing all these exciting things and it looks like he's gonna take over and kick out all these Romans and kick out all these bad religious leaders who are making things terrible for everyone. 
He started a movement. He's gonna, like it's gonna change. Amazing, bring it on. He's talking about real faith, real love, none of this fake religion stuff. And then he's dead. What a movement. I think they were disappointed, massively. They'd left their nets, they'd left their workplace, they'd left it all behind to follow this guy. I think they were feeling let down. I mean, he'd explained to them that this was gonna happen, but clearly it hadn't sunk into their heads. It's obvious that they were confused. They'd only realized this stuff, oh, he, he told us that. They only realized later, in the midst there, in that liminal moment. So we could call between Good Friday when Jesus died and Easter Sunday, we could call that a liminal time, a liminal moment. Horribly uncomfortable. It requires so much to walk through that. I think the disciples would have felt very let down by Jesus in that time. But Jesus had been trying to tell them about the unimaginable future ahead. It was bigger than they had ever expected and it was just around the corner. They, they just couldn't grasp the shift and the change of the new life that Jesus was entering into. So as Christians, uh, we don't believe in the avoidance of death. We believe in the power of God's life-giving breath over death. We believe in resurrection power, that death and disappointment and disease and disaster can happen, and yet there is life that will still come. Any death, any loss, any grief is not the last word. God's breath of resurrection life is the last word. And part of our learning to trust again is to be reshaped in our understanding, to be reshaped in a resurrection understanding. Just like those first disciples had to be reshaped and to relearn how it was that they were going to trust the Lord Jesus again and continue to follow him into a very different future. We need to be reshaped and reformed to retrust the Lord Jesus as he brings about resurrection life. So may you lament. May you sit in liminal spaces. May you lift your gaze and may you learn to trust again in the faithfulness of God.